Good morning to everyone in the Diocese of Orange and elsewhere in Southern California. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio on AM 1000. We're coming to you through the good offices of Immaculate Heart Radio today and every Thursday morning from 11 to noon from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. I'm Patrick Mott. Most of us see the unstable environment of the Middle East through the filters of television, radio, or print, but it's the job of our first guest today to see it all firsthand and to seek out the people in that region who are in the greatest need. Kevin Hartigan is visiting the Diocese of Orange, taking a few days away from his usual job as the Regional Director for the Middle East, Europe, and Central Asia for the Catholic Relief Services. Based in Cairo, he oversees relief and development programs in 15 countries, including Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, the West Bank and Gaza, Ukraine, and Egypt. He has been with CRS for 25 years. He began his career with CRS in 1990 as an intern in Haiti, became a program director in the Cameroon in 1991, and he also served as CRS country representative for three years in Angola and four years in the Democratic Republic of the Congo during periods when both countries were torn by civil war. He became regional director for Central Africa in 2001, where he supervised CRS programming in Cameroon, the Central African Republic, Chad, Congo, Equatorial Guinea, the DRC, and Nigeria. Kevin, welcome to Orange County, and many thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, so many of us tend to see the Middle East through a political or a military lens because that's where many of the sources with, so to speak, the biggest megaphones are. And we're literally half a world away. We're removed from it all. You've been there frequently and seen what daily life is like. So what daily realities are we not seeing across the region, or what do we choose not to see? Well, Pat, thanks, and, and again, thanks for having me here. It's it's really a privilege, and I have to say, part of the reason I'm here is to thank the Diocese of Orange for the generosity of the people, the parishes of this diocese are really exceptional, and I'm here because we had a special collection for support for the crisis in the Middle East uh, last fall, and it had really just an exceptional outpouring of generosity. From the, from the people here, which we're using now to support the local church in throughout the Middle East and responding to the crises in Syria and Iraq and Gaza. But to get to your question, I think, you know, any of these wars, as you get f- closer to them, they look less and less like political events and more like human tragedies. And that's true. We're also, I'm also responsible for our response to the crisis in Ukraine and it was just there and it's a, it's a similar situation. Um, we're just talking about millions of civilians, of uh, women, of children, a lot of elderly, a lot of ill people, um, you know, all of them trying to get through this winter. I think any of us, you know, can imagine if not only we, but our grandparents and, you know, small children were suddenly made homeless uh, in winter conditions, what that would would mean for our, our lives. And so, so the, the humanitarian costs of the conflicts going on now, and particularly the conflicts Conflicts that uh, really exploded in the in the summer in Gaza and Ukraine and uh, and Iraq, you know, it's it's daunting for us. And um, and I would say the only positive thing I can say coming out of this is that in response to that crisis, there is an 
amazing effort on the part of the local church in all of these countries and and many other groups to respond. There's uh, the other thing that you experience as you get close to any of these conflicts is the reality that most of the displaced people and refugees are are not in camps in these countries. They are being hosted by host families, people in many cases who are complete strangers. Um, Like, you know, I come from Minnesota and people do this during blizzards, you know, you take in your neighbors, whatever. People are taking in strangers and neighbors and people from other religious groups for extremely extended periods and um, it's heartwarming and inspiring to see the um, the service and the generosity of people well you mentioned the uh, the outpouring of help that Christians in the region are offering mm-hmm. to everyone yeah. but nevertheless they are being they're being targeted by extremists why is that well as we've all seen in the news the um, you know self-declared uh, Islamic State has victimized religious minorities uh, Christians Yazidis Shia Turkmen in in Iraq in particular and as a result hundreds of thousands of people have been forced uh, to flee have lost all their possessions or and Many people have been killed. I have to say I can't purport to understand the motivation or the the ideas behind the extremism. But I can say that, again, the church, even even in Iraq, for example, is a good good example. The Christians have been persecuted and and victimized, as have been the Yazidis and the, and the, the other religious minorities. But the church is also providing a very disproportionate amount of assistance to all of those people, to the Christians and to the non-Christians. Yes. And so we shouldn't think of the church only as a victim no, in, no, in no. Iraq. The church is extremely active, and the church is helping tens of thousands of people. The area that the Christians of Mosul and the Nineveh Valley have had to flee to is also a Christian area. It's an area of ancient Assyrian and Chaldean Catholic parishes. These people speak Aramaic. It's, uh, it's an extremely ancient um, tradition. The church has been there, you know, from uh, for thousands of years, and uh, and they are mobilized, completely mobilized. The volunteers, the communities, to host people, to provide assistance, and they are essentially the the workers and you know ground troops of our of our relief effort, of the relief effort of Catholic Relief Services and of the uh, Universal Church there. Uh, we're working through those parishes and through those volunteers. Um, and we've got also, you know, the volunteer work of all of the displaced Christians. So we have a lot of the employees of the Catholic Charities of Iraq, for example, who were, are themselves displaced, who are from the areas that have fallen to ISIS. We have a lot of Dominican sisters who have come out of those areas. Uh, you know, uh, all the diocesan priests and parish, they have all turned themselves to relief work and very very quickly from uh, when they arrived in Kurdistan the church is organizing schools um, all of the parish grounds have been turned into essentially camps for the displaced families with services for the children for with uh, water with everything so the church is extremely dynamic and extremely active right now in Iraq. It's not wallowing in despair about what has happened with ISIS. If you've just joined us, 
We are talking with Kevin Hartigan of Catholic Relief Services about CRS's efforts in the Middle East primarily. What do these people need most right now? Winter has set in. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be the basics. That's right. Our, our focus really throughout the region, and this is true for the Syrian refugees, for the people who are homeless in Gaza, um, for the people in Ukraine, certainly, and uh, all of the internally displaced in Iraq, the focus right now across the board is to help people survive this winter. So that is support for shelter, heating fuel, uh, warm clothes, food as well, obviously. And you know there are again there are millions of displaced in this in this region so just trying to reach at least as many of the vulnerable families as we can which would be for us uh, women-headed households uh, families with elderly with disabled people obviously who have no host families or relatives in the areas where they're going this is it's a huge task and that will continue to occupy us and you know through the next few months Past that, the requests we're getting very strongly from from the displaced communities themselves and also from the local church is to turn ourselves to education because there, um, there is quite a bit of angst among these communities, among the parents, the families of the displaced, of the refugees, about the fact that their children are out of school and have been out of school for the Iraqis, not one year, but for the Syrians, several years, some of them. And we all know, like, you know, that for a child to to miss a couple of years of school, particularly at a formative age, is, is, is a real tragedy. So, And it's one that's being multiplied by millions in this part of the world. So we're trying to work with the local church. Again, this is something that the Catholic Church throughout the Middle East has a real vocation for and a tradition of, and you've got a lot of uh, teachers and educators and Catholic schools, many of them that have been destroyed or displaced, but the human resources are there and the commitment to education is there. Kevin Hardigan is the Regional Director for Europe and the Middle East for Catholic Relief Services. We will talk more with him in just a minute. A live one-man drama performed by Leonardo DeFilippis of St. Luke Productions will be presented at Christ Cathedral at Freed Theater on Friday, March 27th at 7 p.m., Saturday, March 28th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m., and Sunday, March 29th at 12 noon. The event is sponsored by the Diocese of Orange. Experience firsthand the story of St. John Vianney, the humble priest who battled the devil to save souls and whose life was so remarkable that he was recognized as the model saint for all priests and laity. Filled with all the elements of professional theater, the production incorporates a multimedia component offering a full cast of characters. The production is suitable for ages 9 and up, and admission is $20. There will be a reception 30 minutes before each performance. That's Vianney at Christ Cathedral and Freed Theater in Garden Grove, Friday, March 27th at 7 p.m., Saturday, March 28th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m., and Sunday, March 29th at 12 noon. For tickets and additional info, visit ChristCathedralCalifornia.org forward slash events.
We're back with Kevin Hardigan from Catholic Relief Services. We're talking about the Middle East primarily and the situation there. Kevin, you mentioned a little earlier that there are displaced people all over the region, uh, not just pockets of them. They're just everywhere. And I think a lot of Americans may be a little bit confused about who they might be. We might consider them to be low-income refugees that uh, are kind of on the periphery of society, but they're not, are they? These are highly educated people whose lives have been completely thrown off kilter. Right. Well, essentially, you know, you've got like all of society, right? So you have the whole, the entire, the entire range, but from what were pretty, um, you know, relatively prosperous and developed and very educated societies, you know, and uh, and this is a change for myself and for some of our colleagues coming from other civil wars and you know in Central Africa and other places, among the the refugees and the displaced, even those that that work for us, you have a high number who have been to the United States even educated in the United States. You have doctors, lawyers, engineers, people, um, again, with advanced degrees from Europe and from the U.S. Even many of these, you know, the these parish priests in Iraq, some of them spent years in Detroit or San Diego or something. It's, it's just amazing, you know. So there's the, you know, these people would be very familiar to you. Or, I mean, they're, they're, uh, it really forces us to imagine our own families, our own societies uh, thrown into this. Um, and, and because their worlds were really destroyed extremely suddenly. They did not see this coming in Mosul. And the Syrians did not see a civil war coming uh, before this began either. They didn't imagine this would ever happen in their lifetimes. And I would say, could say the same of the uh, people we're serving now in Ukraine. They didn't, you know, again, very highly educated, um, very, you know, I, I was with some of the displaced Ukraine just recently and we're talking about, uh, you know, one of the families I visited had a very elderly, sick grandmother who they had had to carry out of this area of Donetsk, but their young daughter was playing, played the violin for myself and uh, and Steve Kalecki. I know you had Steve on here. You know, played they're just beautiful. And you know, this this kid, you know, excellent student. Of course, now out of school and displaced, but took her. You know, the parents took the violin with her, and uh, they're sitting there in a you know in a government shelter. But this family, obviously, yeah, we're not expecting this to happen during their lifetimes, and uh, and so it's. It does make us really reflect on, you know, and appreciate, of course, what we have, but also, you know, the precariousness of of life in a lot of parts of the world and a lot of different times in history, you know, are, uh, you realize that for our generation in the United States, life has been kind of uneventful by historical standards, but that's not the norm for many parts of the world or other periods in history, and that's not certainly what the historical times we're living now in the Middle East. Well, imagine if you're living in a single-family home in Anaheim and having a wonderful life, and uh, two weeks later you're living in a tent and wondering whether mm. you're going to find potable water. Yeah. 
it's just about like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it is like, it is like, you know, I think, you know, what the only parallel we've seen, again, recently in the United States would be Katrina, what happened to the, you know, the populations in, in New Orleans. And this is, yeah, this is kind of as if Katrina happened to the entire south of the United States, for example, or, you know, to a half of our country, um, because the, yeah, the extent of, um, of disruption. I mean, we have, you know, Mosul was a, t- a city with, large universities hospitals clinics we the the among the the displaced iraqis who are working for ourselves in catholic charities now we have professors from the university engineers uh doctors again you know u.s educated some of them uh and who are you know living in unfinished buildings with their extended families while they work for us Catholic Relief Services in that region particularly is very effective, uh, you you mentioned uh, to some of us earlier, because the organization has built up such a large amount of trust over the years. That's so? Well, it is. But again, I think, you know, we have to be modest in the sense that we are piggybacking, I would say, on the trust that the Catholic Church has in these societies. So the Catholic Church has always played a disproportionate role in education and social welfare and health care in most of the countries we're talking about, including um, Iraq and Syria and the countries around Syria, and the um, and our sister agencies, the Catholic Charities and the congregations, the orders of sisters and uh, and fathers that we work with through the region are, of course, extremely well respected. Right? I mean, people have been going to their schools and hospitals, you know, and of all faiths. Right? The Muslim population, the uh, the Orthodox, the other populations, uh, and so. It, to be honest, it's it is a, quite a privilege to be representing the Catholic Church in that part of the world, uh, because the um, you know the church has built up such a strong reputation and credibility, and uh, and also it is a bit like you know even in parts of the country in our parts of our country where there wouldn't be maybe many Catholics, but there would be active St. Vincent de Paul or Salesian or Don Bosco or kind of, you know, um, programs for uh, children that a lot of people have had have had very positive contacts with the Catholic Church over their lives, even if they're not Catholic. We are speaking with Kevin Hardigan, who is the regional director for Europe and the Middle East with Catholic Relief Services. The Christians in the region uh they get along with most of the other religions in the region. There's a lot of interfaith cooperation going on, correct? Yeah, a great deal. Uh, Apart, of course, from the extremists. Well, that's it. That's it. A great deal. And, you know, otherwise, I mean, of course, there was peaceful coexistence between these communities for a very long time before these conflicts uh, erupted. But you see this within the refugee and displaced populations, the interaction, the the, uh, collaboration, the both in terms of of relief work, and I should say, even even northern Iraq, where the Christian there are a great deal of you know uh, Christian victims. Still, the Catholic Charities of Iraq, who's our main partner that we're supporting and working side by side with, 
only about 20% of their beneficiaries in Kurdistan right now are Christian. They're helping a great number of Yazidi and Muslim families, as they always have. And they're getting along, you know, there's a lot of appreciation from those communities and from the religious leaders of those communities for that work. Um, Similarly, uh, Christian families are being hosted by Muslim families and vice versa. When... I visited the Nineveh Plain area around Mosul right uh, in July after the Christians had been um, expelled from Mosul and Iraq. Many of the Christian families were being hosted by Yazidi uh, communities. Today, it's the Yazidi communities that are being hosted by Christian communities because ISIS, of course, advanced then into that area that we had visited. And and so there is a great deal. Also, I'd say, you know, some very encouraging and heartwarming collaboration between the Orthodox and Catholic churches in, uh, in many of these uh, places now, particularly as they try to uh, organize relief to their their communities. Also, as they try to initiate interfaith peace efforts, and there's quite a bit of that, the, 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 the Catholic Church uh, throughout the region in, in virtually all of the countries that I described, the Catholic bishops are meeting with the, um, with the imams and with the Orthodox and Protestant uh, leadership, and in Ukraine even with those groups and with the two Orthodox churches and the Jewish community to to try to promote an end to these conflicts and peaceful coexistence and tolerance. Well, in the couple of minutes we have left, let's get to the real uh, basis of it all. How can we, half a world away, help out? What can we do? Well, again, the reason I'm here is to thank the people of the Diocese of Orange for all you have done and uh, the generosity, the, the the support for Catholic Relief Services for our work has been fantastic from the Diocese. And, uh, and we would, of course, you know, highly appreciate any continued support. But uh, again, the uh, the parish and the dice have already been extremely generous, and where it's enabled uh, the funds uh, that were collected here in the fall have already enabled us uh, to help thousands of Iraqi families and uh, Syrian families, and uh, we certainly always appreciate that support. And we have particular Lenten collections like Operation yes. Rice oh, Bowl. Yes, yes, yes. Operation Rice Bowl uh, supports our programs around the world, seventy-five uh, percent of it, and twenty-five percent. Uh, the programs here in the uh, in the diocese to to support the the needy uh, more closer to home, but that uh, that enables us to support programs, particularly aimed at issues of chronic hunger in Africa and Asia and and around the world. Well. Kevin Hardigan is the Regional Director for Europe and the Middle East for Catholic Relief Services. Many thanks for taking time out to be with us today. I think we're much more enlightened about the situation in the region than than we were 20 minutes ago. And we would like to thank you and everybody with CRS for doing such a magnificent job in the Middle East and around the world. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. This is Orange County Catholic Radio, AM 1000, and we'll be back shortly to continue our discussion of the Middle East with Stephen Kalecki. Stephen is the director of the Office of International Justice and Peace for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Please stay with us.
Orange County Catholic Radio is made possible by the generous support of the Orange Catholic Foundation, an independent not-for-profit organization raising funds to support the mission of the Catholic Church in the Diocese of Orange. To learn more about their vision, their mission, and about upcoming events, visit online www.orangecatholicfoundation.org. That's orangecatholicfoundation.org. We're back and we're joined by Stephen Kalecki. Stephen is the Director of the Office of International Justice and Peace for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Before we get into our discussion of the situation in the Middle East as it relates to Christians in the region, uh, Stephen, tell us a little bit about what the Office of International Justice and Peace does. What's your role with the U.S. bishops? Well, it's a bit of a daunting role, as the title implies, but actually what our staff and our office do is that we enable the bishops of the United States to take the body of Catholic social teaching and to apply it to international concerns that are issues for our Church. And so we work on issues of human rights, religious freedom, global poverty, conflict, war and peace. And the idea is that we help the bishops of the United States to speak to our government. There's a Committee on International Justice and Peace that's chaired by Bishop Oscar Cantu, and uh, we serve them and help them to engage uh, policymakers and general public on issues of concern to the Church internationally. Well, you're right. You are painting with a very broad palette here. Well, Christians are being targeted by terrorists in the Middle East, as anyone knows who's been uh, listening to the news. Is this something new, or is it just manifesting itself in a more violent and systematic way? Well, Christians are an ancient presence throughout the Middle East. And there have been ebbs and flows of uh, periods of persecution or periods of stress for the Christian community in the Middle East at different times in history. But what we're seeing now, at least in the modern era, is rather unprecedented. And I should just hasten to add that all religious and ethnic groups within the Middle East have experienced these ebbs and flows of persecution. But right now, there's, there's no question that, uh, you know, extremists have Christians uh, in the bullseye. You also don't want to be a Yazidi if you're in the Middle East. That's another religious and ethnic group that has been specifically targeted. And frankly, you don't want to be a, a minority Muslim. You know, if you're a Shia in a predominantly Sunni area or a Sunni in a predominantly Shia area, this is a very difficult time for those religious communities as well. In fact, the majority of people who have died uh, in the recent conflicts have been Muslims. But, you know, Christians are being targeted precisely for their faith. You know, you saw the gruesome tale of the 21 uh, Egyptian men who were in Libya to work to support their families, and, you know, they're beheaded for no other reason than they're Christian. And uh, we just heard a report today, a very sad report, that it looks like scores of Christians in Syria have been rounded up by an extremist group, yes. uh, and we don't know their fate at this point. Well, what has been the response of the U.S. bishops, uh, officially and unofficially? What are they doing? Well, you know, we're doing a lot of things. We've instituted uh, several days of prayer for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. We took up a special national collection throughout every parish of the country to provide humanitarian assistance to displaced Christians and other displaced uh, people within the Middle East. We have engaged policymakers here in Washington, D.C., and we've traveled to the region on solidarity trips to be with our brothers and sisters to see what they're actually facing. 
Uh, and in fact, I just got back I, last month. I went to Kurdistan, the Kurdish region of Iraq, with Bishop Kantu precisely to meet with the Christians there and to meet with church leaders and to see what more we could do. And, and there's a lot that we can do. Uh, you know, we've got to get our government uh, to clearly name this religious persecution and to authorize uh, the use of force in proportionate and discriminate ways within international and humanitarian law right. in order to protect Christians and other religious minorities to end the violence. And that the Holy See has said that is licit, that is legitimate uh, to use force for the purpose of defense within international and humanitarian law. That's right. Uh, we also need to acknowledge that this problem cannot be solved solely through a military response. You can protect people through a military response, but then you need to get at the underlying causes uh, of the conflict, some of the underlying drivers. And political exclusion and economic desperation, unfortunately, are exploited by extremists to gain their recruits. So, for example, uh, you know, in Iraq, what we heard from the Christians there was because the Sunni uh, Muslims have been excluded from governance in Iraq since the U.S. invasion and really pushed to the margins of life in Iraq. There were elements within that community out of desperation who sort of turned to this extremist ideology or were more receptive to it and, and allowing you know, the, the so-called Islamic State to come in. Well, you've got to remove those. You've got to have inclusive governance in Iraq so that all communities have a stake in the common good so that uh, these extremists don't get a Foothold. In fact, in a letter, they said you can inoculate populations against extremism by promoting inclusion and economic opportunity and yes. respect for human rights. And, of course, then we've got to scale up the humanitarian response. I mean, we've got millions of people, Yazidis, Christians, Muslims, displaced from their homes throughout the region. And one of the things we need to do is we need to deliver some of that humanitarian assistance, U.S. government assistance, through trusted NGOs who have relationships with uh, each of the communities there. So, for example, Catholic Relief Services, we visited them in uh, the Kurdish region of Iraq, where they're actually on the ground able to work right alongside the local church with their Caritas Iraq program there in order to reach out to displaced Christians who have been displaced from Mosul into the Kurdish region, and there are tens of thousands of them. In fact, it was just difficult to see. Uh, we were sitting in Erbil at our hotel, you know, quite comfortable, and you'd look out the hotel window, and across the street there was a church compound. And on the grounds of this church compound, every inch of it was covered with tents where displaced Christians were living with their families, My sometimes goodness. eight, ten people to a tent. You know, but you know, they, the church was their mother, their home. That's where they went for safety. You know, and the church is working to help them to stay in the region and to provide for their daily needs. And hopefully, they'll find work. And if you're just joining us, we are talking with Stephen Kolecki, who is the director of the Office of International Justice and Peace for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. We're talking about the situation in the Middle East as relates to not just Christians, but other ethnic and religious groups. This would probably be a good time to put in a plug for an event coming up next Tuesday evening, March 3rd, here on the Christ Cathedral 
Central Campus. There's going to be an ecumenical prayer service in solidarity with persecuted Christians, and that's going to be held in the Arboretum from 7.30 to 8.30, and several Southern California Christian leaders will participate. Bishop Kevin Van will be here, of course, as will be Bishop Awa Royal of the Assyrian Church of the East, Diocese of California, also Bishop Serapion of the Coptic Orthodox Church, Diocese of Los Angeles, and a reception will follow in the Cathedral Cultural Center. Stephen, I imagine that this sort of event uh, that we're going to be having here coming up is something that you and the U.S. bishops can certainly get behind. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Prayer is critically important. Uh, let me just tell you, when we arrived in Erbil, Iraq, Bishop Kantu and I, the very first place we went was to the Chaldean Cathedral there, the Chaldean Catholic Cathedral. And at that cathedral, we witnessed the ordinations of three deacons. And the church was filled, people were praying, and it's their faith that's sustaining them. And the last word that I heard from one of the bishops as we were leaving Iraq was, we will pray for you, thank you for being with us, and please pray for us. I mean, prayer is real. It helps. It also increases our, con- it makes us more conscious uh, of the conflict and then maybe perhaps more willing to urge our government to do something about it. But prayer itself, that spiritual connection, is really important to the people there. They don't want to be forgotten. You know, this is an ancient Christian community going back, uh, you know, a couple thousand years. Well, for many people, it has to be unusually frustrating to see these things unfolding in the Middle East and not be able to do anything tangible on an individual basis to get it to stop. But you know, Catholics, on the other hand, have been raised on the idea that prayer is a tangible thing and that it does help, which is the reason for the ecumenical prayer service we just mentioned. But what other sorts of aid of this nature should uh, the Catholic faithful here in the U.S. consider? Well, you know, in addition to prayer, which is the first thing, uh, they need to turn their fasting during Lent into almsgiving, and I would strongly encourage them. I know CRS Rice Bowl, Catholic Relief Services Rice Bowl program, goes during Lent, and to give generously to Catholic Relief Services, which is on the ground aiding our brothers and sisters in their hour of need. Uh, you know, we had that second collection, as I mentioned, in all the parishes of the, of the country, and that was another way our Catholics could give. The other thing they can do is they can, uh, they can contact their senator, their representative in Congress, and, and share the messages that the bishops have been sharing. That is, uh, that it's licit to use proportionate and discriminate force within international law to protect, that a force alone is not going to be enough, that we need to have a, a robust you know, political inclusion program, an economic development program for the Middle East that ultimately gets at some of the, the situations that, that extremists exploit in gaining, gaining their uh, recruits. And we need to encourage our government to scale up humanitarian assistance in a big way because the displacements are simply massive. Well, talking about the displacements for just a second in the last minute we have here, they are all over the region, are they not? They're, they're, they're not just simply in isolated spots. No, they really aren't. The Lebanon has been overwhelmed with refugees from Syria. I've been in Turkey. In Turkey, there's refugees staying all throughout Turkey, and especially along the border. You have uh, enormous displacements from both Iraq and uh, Syria into Jordan. You have people uh, in, in Egypt that, that, have, uh, that have fled as far as Egypt. I, I've met with uh, Syrian and Iraqi refugees there. 
and uh, you have a, a whole region that's in that's in turmoil right now. And as there's a, this weakening of the rule of law in different places, you have these extremists kind of moving in, and we need to find a way to marginalize them. We need to uh, create a future where these people uh, feel they have uh, where the majority of people feel they have an investment in the common good and good governance, and they feel included uh, so we can marginalize these extremists who have really warped religion uh, and done things that mainstream Muslims find absolutely abhorrent. Stephen Kalecki, thank you so much for being with us today. You've given us a lot to think about and talk about, and we will definitely keep the prayers coming for the people of the Middle East and for you and the good work you do. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Pat. When we come back, we'll hear about an organization within the church you may not have known existed. It's called Pueri Cantores, and it involves, very often, angelic voices. This is Orange County Catholic Radio, AM 1000. Don't go away. On the line with us from Corpus Christi, Texas, where he's the director of liturgy for the Diocese of Corpus Christi, the music director at Corpus Christi Cathedral, and the president of the American Federation of Pueri Cantores, is Lee Guotes. For those of you unfamiliar, Pueri Cantores is an official organization of children and youth within the Catholic Church, and they have been sanctioned by St. John Paul II that brings together youth choirs to raise the profile of choral music in churches, schools, the community, and artistic venues. There are Pueri Cantores choirs throughout the U.S. and the International Federation of Pueri Cantores includes 60,000 singers in 30 countries. Lee, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Well, I'm so glad to be here, and uh, I hope everything's going well there in California. Oh, wonderful out here. Tell us how Pueri Cantores got started. Well, it actually got started here in the United States around like the, the 40s and the 50s, and then it kind of stopped after a while. But it was then rejuvenated when, uh, back then, Pope John Paul II kind of reignited its flame by having international festivals uh, at the Vatican. And so that prompted uh, the United States to uh, reform its own uh, American chapter under the leadership of Cardinal uh, Bernardin in Chicago. He used to be a member as a child of one of the Pueri Cantor's choirs back in the uh, 40s and the 50s. And so he was our uh, leader here in the United States to get it moving again. Now, tell us what range of ages we're talking about here uh, among uh, these are juvenile voices for the most part. Well, grade-wise, we usually start grade four and up. So that's basically when we get started. There's sometimes we sneak in the earlier groups there, but we try to train directors who work with children uh, beginning in grade one, but then we offer festivals grades four and up. And it can go all up as uh, into junior college, too. The European federations involve adult men, so it gets into the adult area there. But here in the United States, it's basically uh, up until high school. Well, in so many school districts around the country, the music curriculum over the last several years has been cut back to one degree or another, sometimes pretty drastically. Does Pueri Contouris help fill in that gap? That's, we try to do that, especially among the uh, many, many uh, 
wonderful Catholic schools. Unfortunately, music's taking kind of a sidelight. So we're trying to, again, ignite a flame of the importance of the wonderful treasures of music that the Catholic Church has, you know, from chant to, to Latin music to the, the contemporary music of today that, you know, our children need to experience. And so this is part of their upbringing, their heritage. And by uh, having these festivals throughout the country, we involve all these uh, children's choirs from all the parishes and schools in regional festivals. So it helps bring them all together, and then they can all make uh, beautiful and experience great music together. Well, I can speak for our parishes out here in the Diocese of Orange. I do not think there are many parishes that have children's choirs or youth choirs. Quite a few have adult choirs, but they don't go in so much for youth choirs. Is that uh, particular to us out here? Is it more popular in the rest of the country? No, it's just like that. It's it's really kind of sad, and we're trying to uh, instill in people that, listen, if you want to bring people back into the church and into the pews, involve their children. And here at at, uh, our cathedral, we started a very strong children's choir program. We used to have a very, very small congregation because we are a downtown cathedral, like many cathedrals are, and there's you know no housing or residential around there. So we started a, a, a wonderful children's choir program, and what that did is it brought children and their parents back to church and filling the pews. I think that this is a secret to bring people back to church, is to start with your children, involve them in liturgy, uh, be it as uh, you could be a server, but also as a, a singer. And uh, we've had, I've had kids in my program since grade one who are now adults having kids in grade one choir. So I've been here for 30 years, and I see the results of our labor. It's been wonderful. And that's kind of a secret that the, the United States Church can rethink about is is really putting its energies into the power of the great music and instill it in our children. What do you tell a kid, and you've run into this, I know you have because you're a music educator, what do you tell a kid who says, oh, I can't sing? Or, or worse than that, what do you tell a kid who has been told by someone else sometime along the way that they can't sing, but they can? How do you convince them that they really can? Well, I give them a test. It's a, it's just quick questions. I ask them to repeat after me. And I say, repeat after me, I whisper like this. And then they say, I whisper like this. So, I speak like this. I speak like this. Then I go, I sing like this. And they go suddenly, I sing like this. See, you can sing. Just, like, just, just like that. that. That's the channel. And that is, I even experienced that with adults going through that, that same question. And they don't realize they actually can sing. And so many people are told sometimes that they can't, but that's because whoever's training them doesn't know how to teach them the art of going into what I call their singing channel. And so uh, that's, that's what I run through whenever I encounter a child like that or an adult. I go through that process, and then they realize it's like a light bulb lights when they hear themselves sing. Well, how does the experience enhance a kid's spiritual life as well? I know from my personal experience, I've been a singer for a number of years, that involvement in choral singing is its own reward, really. But when you take it into a spiritual setting, there's another benefit. Well, you know, there's a, it's the beauty of singing in a, a church choir is, first of all, well, we have a choir loft, and the kids can see the, the altar better, number one. Uh-huh. <laughs> have a great view. But 
you know, singing engages their feelings, and, and we want them to sing from their heart, and we want them to pray while they sing. And when they sing and provide feeling, we, it's one of the few things that a child learns how to express their feelings through music. And so they experience this every Sunday at Mass, and they are moved. And, then, and we also teach them about the liturgy so they know why are they singing the Kyrie at this time or the, the Anise, or why are they singing this text because it ties into the theme or the homily. And it all connects because we're not just there for them to sing and show, you know. They're right. there to enhance the liturgy and the total experience. So this is one of the few things that a child can do where we engage their feelings and assimilate a prayer type of uh, experience. Well, and they're not just singing the parts of the Mass over the course of time. They're getting into other literature, some of uh, the great choral literature. How how challenging yes. does some of this literature get? Are they really getting into some of the complex stuff? Well, that's the beauty of the Puri Contours festivals. Most of the choirs and parishes, parish choirs, are very, they're small. They can be from 10 to 12 singers, or but when they gather together for these festivals, festivals, which have 300 to 500 to 600 singers, then they can uh, sing some of the more challenging repertoire. And that's when we plug those into the festival so that when they're with these larger choirs, they can sing such great things that, uh, that have been put on by Mozart, great motets by Mozart, by Haydn, and even Brahms, uh, all, all kinds of music, uh, Palestrina. Uh, but then we also program music that they can use in their own parishes. So we offer all styles. We try not to stick to one style of music. We do uh, teach them the chant, which are the treasures of the church, but also the contemporary music, spiritual, and things like that. Well, I, I think I know the answer to this next one, but how many kids continue with their music beyond Puerto Cantores and into college and even adulthood? You know, it's been amazing. Some of the blessings of being here 30 years is to see where your children and those, those who have been in your choir have gone. And many of mine have continued in the ministry of music. Several of them are directors of their own music programs. And I'm also happy to say we've had vocations from the um, several choirs, that, uh, several members of the choirs have been in my cathedral choir. We have about four priests and, and three nuns, and so they've gone on to spiritual life. So it, it has had a great effect, but many of them continue in the church wherever they go, wherever they go. If they move, move on, they continue in the ministry. Fantastic. It's amazing. It also leads into successful careers, not necessarily music, but it gives them a discipline that, uh, that they carry on the rest of their life. Just in the last 30 seconds we've got left here, uh, the American Federation of Puerto Contoras is based right here in Orange County, in the city of Orange. Uh, Definitely. Yeah, Lee, Lee, where can people go for more information about the organization? Well, they can look up our website, pcquires.org. That stands for Puerto Contours, but pcquires.org, and it tells everything about Puerto Contours, how they can be look uh, for a festival in their area or become a member. And it's real simple to go onto that website. Wonderful. Again, that's pcquires.org to look up anything having to do with Puerto Contours. I encourage everyone to Let me just to tell you that. one more thing. Our international festival will be in Rome in January of 2016, and we already have over 2,000 children from the United States registered to go sing for the Holy Father January 1st at St. Peter's in Rome. That's going to be an event. An amazing event. 
Lee Gwotz, thank you very much for speaking with us today from deep in the heart of Texas. And you got that right. <laughs> we'll keep our ears open for the wonderful choral music that Puerti Cantores provides. And that's it for another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. Please join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. for another hour of good talk and intriguing topics. You're tuned to Immaculate Heart Radio, AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott.